Uh, everyone turn to, to Psalm 11. If you're at home, grab your Bible, um, your phone, your iPad. Let's uh, look at God's Word. We're in this sermon series, uh, Deep Comfort. And we are looking at how to trust God in difficult times. Um, last few months have definitely fit that bill for many people. Hard times, tr- difficult times. Uh, let's list what we have seen go on. We've had, uh, in, both in our, our nation, in our world, we've had um, hard times with health, right? Many sicknesses. We've had hard time with the, the economy. We've had a hard time with relationships as people have had to distance themselves from one another. We've had a hard time as a society um, with some of the, the struggles, the protests, the anger that uh, many people are expressing um, I want to turn to Psalm 11 and see what it says. So let's read this together. In the Lord, I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows and they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot, for the Lord is righteous. And he loves justice. The upright will see his face. Now, this is a psalm of David. And this psalm certainly does not preclude those types of hard times that we mentioned before that we're facing as neighborhoods and as a country and as a global community. But in particular, this psalm focuses on individual hard times that King David is facing. Now, historically, what was happening? We're not quite sure, but likely, it's very likely that this psalm was written in response to um, perhaps the most troubling time in David's life. There was an an attempt to overthrow David's um, kingly reign, to usurp his throne. Oh, that's pretty troubling. Perhaps the most difficult, well, not perhaps, I'm sure the most difficult thing about this for David is leading the charge against him was his own son, Absalom. The foundations of David's life were being threatened. It seemed like they were falling apart. Talk about foundational, you know, having your children not try to kill you and take your throne. That's rather foundational for a good life, correct? So this is more than just a bad day for David. Now, have you ever felt like you're having a panic attack? That all you wanted to do was just run and flee and hide. Have you been there? Maybe you're in a similar spot this morning. We're going to talk about three things to look for in order to stand firm. So they are these. 
Look to where God is located. Look to what God is doing and look to what God is bringing. So where is God located? What is he doing and what is he bringing? First, stand firm by looking to where God is located. Where is he located? Well, look at, look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. And these are not conflicting phrases. They are parallel thoughts of where God is located. David is saying God is in his temple. He's seated on his throne in his temple. Now, for us today, this may be a little, um, it may be a little difficult to identify with this image of God on his throne. Why? Because we don't live in a time or a location where kings and queens are sitting on their thrones and doing their kingly and queenly things. Um, what, what do they do on their thrones anyway, kings and queens? Now, there's an interesting story in uh, the book of Esther. And you may remember that Esther was um, very connected to the king of Persia, King Xerxes. And there's a point in the story where she needs to go into the presence of the king to ask for a very important favor. And the king is in his throne room. And the edict is that when you approach the king in his throne room, one of two things would happen. Either the king would extend his royal scepter to you, and if this were to happen to Esther, she would live. And if the king withheld the royal scepter, if he just sat there, I don't know, cross-armed, the, then, uh, then that was it for you, and you would be put to death. And Queen Esther's in this predicament. It's an interesting story, and all I want to focus on is what is the king doing on his throne in that great throne room? The story says he's just kind of facing the entrance of the throne room. What is he doing? Is it, are there minstrels there? Are, is he just kind of staring off? And, I mean, what, what is he doing? Just looking out and, you know, waiting for someone possibly to show up, and uh, maybe I'll give you my approval in the royal scepter. Uh, what do kings and queens do? Maybe issue an edict here or there? I, I don't know what they do on their thrones. That is not the picture of Psalm 11, David wondering, what is God doing on his throne anyway? For David, it is really important that the Lord is on his throne. Why is that? Well, the second point, that first point was pretty quick. Second point, this is going to be longer. We need to look at what God is doing. What is the significance of God on his throne? Look at a few scriptures. Psalm 103, verse 9 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 47, verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. Psalm 9, verse 7, the Lord, what is he doing on his throne? He's reigning forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He's exercising judgment. When you are feeling threats, when you are tempted to run away and hide, you want God to be sitting on his throne. Why? Because he is there reigning. The reason we would want to run away and flee is if we think, you know, things are incredibly out of control and often we think things are out of control when we feel like we are not in control, that there's nothing we can do to, to gain the upper hand, to start managing the situation, to fix things. 
We think, if I can't be in control, things must be out of control. David knows that just because he is not in control, that doesn't mean that things are out of control because the Lord is on his throne and he is reigning. Now, what I'd like to talk about is just how much God is reigning because there could be some different ideas on that. How does God exercise his his reign? You know, one common thought is, well, sure, God is concerned with the big things of life. God is concerned with the end of all things. God is concerned with, uh, what is he concerned with? Oh, ruling the nations, directing the nations, and making sure that generally everything works out all right. God is concerned with big things like uh, helping his church to thrive and grow. God is interested in these massive, important things like keeping the world from exploding keeping the asteroids away, I I don't know, the big things. Now, I'm not too big myself on praying for open parking spaces in the parking lot. Um, Truth be told, I have prayed that God would help me find my lost wallet on more than one occasion. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. The problem is, with saying that God only governs the big things, is it's really hard to judge what is big and what is small in the eyes of God. And we see this throughout the scriptures. We see the Bible being full of examples of big things appearing quite small in God's eyes, like the Tower of Babel. Pretty small to God. I need to look down there, travel down there to see what this little tower is that people are building. Uh, Big things like the pomp and circumstance of world leaders, turns out, is pretty small in God's eyes. Look at what Isaiah 40 verse 23 says, that God brings princes to naught, to nothing. He reduces the rulers of this world to to, to nothing. God is not impressed with pomp and circumstance of the most powerful men and women on this planet. And oppositely, small things appear at times very big in the sight of God. You know, an old lady tosses just a couple of small little coins worth next to nothing into the offering plate, and boy, Jesus treats that like that's a, that's a millionaire's offering. It's that little simple offering. That's big in God's eyes. Jesus says that even a, a cup of cold water that is given to an overlooked person one of the least of these. That's, that's big in God's eyes. That, that'll receive a reward from God. So in the Bible, we see that big things look small in God's eyes. Small things look big in God's eyes. It is really dangerous for, for us to start thinking, oh, God must not care about this because it's too small. How much does God's providence actually direct the events of our lives? Well, let's talk about what God's providence is and what it isn't. Let's start with what it isn't. You know, when we talk about God's providence, we don't mean that God has just set up natural processes, natural laws that run on autopilot to govern things so that God can just kind of sit back and watch things unfold. Enjoy the show. A person, older in years, wonders... How much time do I have left? 
Is that a function of natural process? You know, God has given you a human heart, and the human heart beats generally, you know, make a whole lifespan out of it, 2.5 to 3 billion times. That's the typical number of beats that a human heart has in it. How many beats do you have left? Are you keeping count? See, see, God doesn't just set up these natural processes. It's not like, here, I'm going to give you this, this, this number of heartbeats for your heart, and when it runs out, I guess you're done. That's not what God does. God doesn't just wind up our bodies, set, step back, and let nature carry its course in our lives. Job chapter 14, verse 5 says, um, look at this, a person's days are numbered. Or a person's days, I'm sorry, a person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. God determines the number of days to the day. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek good health. Of course, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask God for a long life. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask God for healing. You might remember the story of King King Hezekiah. The prophet Isaiah says to King Hezekiah, King, get your affairs in order. Or you're sick and you're not going to recover from this illness. And what does Hezekiah do? He doesn't say, well, I guess this is God's allotment for my number of days. That's it for me. Instead, he prays. And Isaiah tells him, God has heard your prayer. And God's going to give you 15 more years of your life. You see, Hezekiah's actions, they, they did really matter. They do really matter. And does that reduce God's sovereignty? That human, our actions really matter? Not one bit. Because God freely chooses all of his actions. So providence, God's providence is not just setting up the world to kind of run on its own so that God can sit back and observe. That is not providential control from God. What is providence? One of Jesus' more familiar teachings on this is from Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. In other words, not a single bird falls to the ground outside of God's sovereign will. Now you may think, "Uh, is Jesus just speaking in hyperbole here? Saying that God is rather involved, but kind of speaking in generalities. You know, God generally loves you. He generally forgives you. He generally looks kindly on you. He generally is in charge. But there are some times when he just lets things go on their own and things will happen however they do. No! Our our Savior promises this rock-solid faith that cannot be built on generalities. And I believe that when Jesus said that not a sparrow will fall out of a tree outside of the will of the Heavenly Father, I think he meant it. And it's passages like this that led to what the Heidelberg Catechism says about God's providence, this beautiful statement. It says, God's providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and that's me, that's you, and so rules them, And this continues, next slide, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, 
prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, not by luck, but from his fatherly hand. All right. How can it be true that God will will each and every blade of grass to grow or to wither? Each and every bird to live or to fall. I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it, isn't it? How can that be true? G.K. Chesterton reflected on this. Why does the sun rise every day? Why does the moon appear every night? Why does that happen? Is it on autopilot? And G.K. Chesterton said, do you know how little children are full of enthusiasm and joy? You know how? They're just full of enthusiasm. And they love repeating the same action over and over and over again. Like reading the same book over and over and over again. Mommy, Daddy, read me this, my favorite book. We've read it for the past two years in a row, but let's do it again. Or being thrown up into the air by a parent's set of hands. Let's do it over and over and over again, Mommy and Daddy. You know how... Kids are like that, G.K. Chesterton wrote, yeah. And grown-ups will sigh, and they'll do it all over and over again (sighs) until they are about to go crazy. Because, Chesterton writes, they are not strong enough to exult in monotony. And then he writes this, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God does say every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. See, in our mind's eye, we tend to minimize God. We think, oh, how could that be possible that God tells that blade of grass, grow a little bit taller? How could God be so interested in that? Well, maybe God is much more energetic, much more engaged, much more joyful. Maybe God is much more enthusiastic than we could ever imagine. Maybe he does indeed direct every blade of grass, grow a little bit bigger today. Maybe the scripture that says that every hair on your head is numbered, maybe that is indeed true. And God doesn't have to count Too high for some of us. We know that. Maybe Isaiah chapter 40 really is true when it says that every star is there, all one billion billion of them, really, because God called each one by name and intentionally set it out into the sky. Why do we doubt these things to be true? Probably it's because people struggle to believe that God is really as big and as awesome as he is. 
And in reality, God is much more awesome than we could ever imagine. I think of that vision that Isaiah has, the, the, the vision of God seated on his throne in his temple, and there's some angels flying around, and they can't even fathom. The angels can't even fathom the depths of God reigning on his throne. And so what do they say, the angels? They can, they can only utter what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Different, different, different. How utterly different. How utterly holy. How utterly unknowable are you, God. So God is on his throne. And he is ruling over every detail in this world and your life. And so worry comes... We think, when we think things are out of control, but confronted with all of this, we realize that indeed God is in control of every single thing in our lives. They're always under God's control. And so what does that mean for worry? Well, it means that when we get worried, maybe what we're really thinking is, God, I don't know if you're going to do what I want you to do here. And so that leads us to the third thing that we need to look to, in order to stand firm during hard times, and that is to look at what God is bringing. Look at the end of the psalm. Two statements. These aren't on the screen. Um, just look in your Bibles. Uh, verse 5, verse 7. Verse 5 says, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. You see what David is saying? He's saying God's going to bring something as he reigns on his throne. And what is he going to bring? It's going to be justice. God is going to bring about what is right. That is what righteousness is, after all. It's when God brings about what is right, what God has determined and set as right. That is righteousness, and God's going to bring that. And if you are under attack, if it seems like others are out to get you in some form or fashion, or putting it graphically like David did, like they have their arrows set against the strings, and they're aiming those arrows at you, know that God will bring justice. He will bring about what is right. Now, you may need to be patient and wait. Sometimes it seems like God is taking us time. And we need to be patient. But take heart. I think of that quote from Martin Luther King Jr. when he says that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Now, why does God take so long in bringing about his justice, you might ask? Well, it could be that part of the righteous resolution that God wants to work, that God wants to bring about, is really a work in you, a work in me. And this is really important because I think when we feel threatened, 
when it, when it seems like the foundations are being threatened, and I've, I've heard a lot of that language today, that foundations are being threatened, I think we can be pretty quick to start passing some blame around and shouting out who's wrong and who's at fault and getting all riled up in either anger or anxiety or both. And we need to notice something about this psalm. It's really interesting. Verse 3 Look at your Bibles again, verse 3. Ask this question, what can the righteous do? And then the psalm never addresses that. Did you notice that? The psalm never gives an answer, what can the righteous do? Never gives an answer, because in this psalm, God is the one doing the acting. He is the one doing. The psalmist is just waiting patiently on God, and I think that's God's invitation today. We're getting all riled up. And anger and anxiety is to say, God, I'm going to rest in what you're going to do. Maybe this delay in this righteous resolution that we're waiting for God is because there's an inner righteousness that God wants to develop in us, grow in us, work in us. And so think of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, 29. Verse 28 is one of those scriptures that are often used um, when talking about the providential control of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's what is often said. And then verse 29 talks about that purpose towards which God is making all things work towards, and that is for those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so maybe God is asking us not to get all riled up, but to rest in his hands as God shapes us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So I want you to ask, I want to ask you, what is one thing this week that God is inviting you to give up into his hands and just to rest? What is one thing going on in your life where God is saying this to you. You know what? The world will go on just fine without you being in control of this. Where is God inviting you to to let go and place yourself into his hands to be shaped into his righteousness? And I cannot help but think of Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, that says, God will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And the illustration that goes along with it, the illustration of a silversmith that is working carefully on a piece of raw silver over a fire to, to burn out all of the impurities in that raw silver and make it into to something beautiful. And the illustration says that the smith never takes his eye off the silver as he puts it into the flames. Why? Because you leave it in the flames too long and it's going to re- render that silver unworkable. 
He has to pull it out from the fire, the heat, at just the right time. How do you know when it's done and fully refined? The silversmith is asked, and he says, Oh, that's the easy part. I know it's done when I can see my image in it. Now, let me suggest that that is what God is doing with our lives. He's testing us at times. He's letting us to go through difficult times, trials, but not without a purpose. So that he can make his image shine brightly in us. And maybe that's a helpful story as you trust God in hard times. Look to him, seated on his throne. Look at him ruling over every detail of your life. He is watching you so closely. He is. He will not prolong the crisis one moment too late because he is working to form his righteousness in you. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we submit our lives to your hands. We know that in you, we have our only hope. We can look for other things, two other things for security. We won't find them there. We'll find maybe temporary security, but not lasting eternal security and peace. We know that comes in you and in you alone. Lord, will you speak to our hearts now about what we need to let go, uh, what control we need to release to you, Where do we need to trust, not only that you're in control, but trust in the righteous path that you are leading us to bring about the goodness you want to bring to us, the goodness in our life, the goodness in our hearts. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.